Hi everyone, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, joined by Scout Pomeranian. We have been gone for quite a long hiatus. Uh, my apologies. Um, that career change that I was kind of talking about, or career shift, I'm still working in the hospital doing research, but I'm actually full-time teaching now, and I'm super excited. Everything's been going so well. It's been super fun to share, you know, kind of the stuff that I've always wanted to share, but with students, and learn their perspectives, and, you know, see how you know, see, especially see how far the science has come since I was an undergraduate. So that's been very exciting. However, it doesn't leave so, so many days for me to come and do the podcast. So hopefully a few episodes like this once in a while will still keep you interested. But, you know, there's tons of stuff to still learn. My podcast is not like all encompassing or anything like that. So if you're interested in stuff like this, you can always send me messages, things like that. And I can, you know, show you resources that I enjoy, um, direct you to other podcasts that I really like. And you can kind of continue your learning from there. But hopefully we can still kind of go into some cool things in here. So one of the questions some of my students have started to have is that, or is, how does a cancer begin? Like, is there something I can prevent or watch out for? Am I going to get it if my parents have it? This is actually a really, you know, a good question because a long time ago we always thought, oh, well, all diseases are inherited or all susceptibility to diseases are inherited and we know that that's not 100% true anymore. And I think I've said on the podcast before, we, we like I said, we used to think inheritance was a big reason. We, we probably think inherited gene mutations or inherited gene mistakes now maybe make up 10% of initial cancer mutations. You know, again, this is, this is all working in a hypothesis because as we'll kind of go over here, we are very bad at detecting the original kind of cancer stem cell population that, you know, came from the original cell that got the original mistake. Because that's one thing that's very unique about biology is that we are going to initiate a full-on cancer, a full-on disease from one cell that incurs one mistake. That's usually the path that we're going to start from. And that all that comes from that one cell. Okay, so to kind of overview, again, what the main thing that cancer is going to come from is an imbalance of stop versus go signals when it comes to cells dividing. Remember that one cell becomes two cells and that this is a very natural process called mitosis and you know the cell cycle, cell division. It's a very tightly controlled process because if you don't have enough cells renewing, your body physiologically can't keep up with its needs because we renew something like 200 million cells a day or something. I, th I think it's actually a lot more than that. But remember that we're made of something like 10 trillion cells. So in the grand scheme, it's actually not that many turning over. So you, can, you have to have enough of those go signals telling your cells, multiply, multiply, regrow, regrow. But there are tons and tons of checkpoints and stop signals because a cell that is multiplying and dividing, you know, they need to make sure that they have enough either nutrients, that they are not damaged, and that they have their full DNA ready to go each time they divide. So the stop signals that we talk about that oppose those go signals, those are the things that usually need to be overcome for a cell to divide. Now, under more, most normal circumstances, you're going to be able to overcome those signals. Everything's going to be fine. Even a small imbalance in some of those stop signals can allow the go signals to overwhelm them and all of a sudden you've got a group of cells that are just going crazy and dividing all over the place 
and they're not cancer yet, so we'll get to that because it takes a successive amounts of steps and maybe I think the magic number is about four mutations before this is a full-blown medical cancer before we can go into that. However, I did want to touch on that these initial mistakes oftentimes have to hit one of those stop checkpoint genes. It's a little more rare, I think in my experience, that your first, very first mistake is to hit like a growth booster gene and cause it to go into overdrive. I think it's a lot more common to lose one of your kind of caretaker or stop cell cycle genes, and then you go on and successively gain a few more, like more aggressive style genes. Because for the most part, the actual role of the stop genes is to detect DNA damage before cells are allowed to divide, and they actually just pop the cell, they just cause it to go into apoptosis, it explodes, and it's a small price to pay to explode one cell that has DNA damage because you'd never want to pass on DNA damage to the next generation of cells because our editing capabilities of our genes, they're not very good at detecting a mutation after it's already been passed on. To them, they're using the DNA from that cell as a template to say, okay, this is the right sequence. They don't know what the right sequence is if one of the mutations has passed on. They just think that that's the right mutation. So that's why catching it with these stop checkpoint genes that just initially blow the cell up, that's why they're so important. So when you think of a first cell that gains a first mutation, one of the first things that we talked about is, did you inherit this? And that is possible. With BRCA, for example, is a very good example. BRCA is a stop signal in the cells. Now you only need one, so remember you get two chromosomes, each with the identical gene on it for the most part, one from mom, one from dad. If let's say your, um, you know, your mother does not have, she only has one of the BRCA genes instead of both that are functional, and she passes on to you a non-functional one, and your father passes on a functional one, everything's gonna be fine. You only need one functional BRCA gene to do its job. The problem is, is that if you lose that single gene, that's when you have problems and that's when you've lost a stop signal. So that's how inheriting an already mutated version or off version of a stop gene that's very important for the cell cycle like BRCA, that's why inheriting cancer genes sometimes, it usually just means an increased risk. It doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to get it or you're never going to get it or any, anything absolute like that. But there's definitely a greater risk of losing one gene to a random or a, you know, kind of a one in 20 million type of mutation than it is to lose two genes and lose both functional copies. So that's just, that's just genetics right there. It's better to have two copies of a checkpoint gene than one. However, passing on genes like this is usually not, these, these usually aren't the initial events that start things. For the most part, a mutation has to come from somewhere else and knock out one of these stop genes before it can hit, before they can hit anything else. And remember, mutations are just random changes in the DNA, but sometimes if you make a change, even if it's small, it can ruin the final product of a gene, or it can even stop the entire gene from ever being made. It could even silence it, it could, you know, something like that could happen. But for the most part, you need to deactivate one of these stop checkpoint genes via some kind of gene genetic mutation before you can go on and make some more aggressive mistakes that lead to what we will observe in the clinic is cancer. 
One of the greatest sources of these mistakes is simply the environment. If you smoke, if you take in a lot of UV radiation, if, um, you know, if you're breathing in a lot of pollution or if you eat, uh, you know, way too much of the same stuff or anything like super duper processed or terrible, I'm, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a medical doctor, but we're kind of finding that that's not great. Um, for the most part, you give your cells, you expose them to these damaging agents. Now, your cells and your immune system are very good at finding cells who are damaged. Part of the cell cycle is to check the DNA and make sure that that DNA is good and the cell blows up if it's not. The problem is, is that, that mutation hits one of the genes responsible for checking the cell. Then the check goes forward because there's nobody there to stop the cell cycle. So that's the key of losing one of these, what we call tumor suppressor genes. Those are the stop genes, essentially. One of the best gene examples of these is something called TP53. I think we've talked about it a little bit before. It's essentially called the angel gene because TP53, as we call it, will is very sensitive and can detect even the smallest amounts of cellular stress or damage. And it actually allows the cell, before it blows it up, to go in and edit the DNA to make it good again. But if it detects there's just still too much damage, it dies off. This is what you see happening a lot of the time when you incur like a massive, you know, sunburn or something, all those cells just like kind of ripping apart and dying. Some of them are undergoing, I actually shouldn't be 100, I'm not 100% sure about this, if, uh, if some of them are undergoing necrosis versus apoptosis, because necrosis is just like the cells have sustained like a grievous injury, like a heavy burn, freeze, radiation. Um, I'm not 100% sure that if a bad sunburn actually causes necrosis, I would have to look that up. But for the most part, it's blown up your cells, it's blown up your DNA, and that's why, yeah, you shouldn't shouldn't get in a tanning bed for the most part. It's it, I don't I don't know if that's a very, very good idea anymore, because you increase the likelihood of mutating one of these key genes in a single cell, and that that single cell can now proliferate and divide uncontrollably. So, one of the other ways that massive amounts of DNA damage can be incurred is if you essentially, your mitochondria, they start leaking or they aren't, they're kind of in a stressful situation and they start leaking off reactive oxygen species is what we call it. So mitochondria rely on getting electrons from cellular respiration. Remember all that. Now mitochondria are a meme, but they're actually really important. If they are under too much stress or they basically, you know, start aging, they can start shedding off mutating causing agents you know, as we age. And this is a big hypothesis of how why humans age is that mitochondria age, they get worse at their job, and we start leaking off more of these radical electrons, is what we call them, that are usually taken up by our oxygen intake. Uh, that's why we breathe, is that oxygen readily accepts electrons that are powering our mitochondria. Without enough oxygen, or sometimes there's a mistake or two, that electron will go and buzz some DNA and mutate it, things like that. And it can also just cause cellular damage as a whole. The other big way that you can really start a cancer is if the first gene you accidentally mutate or delete for whatever reason is one of these DNA editing genes, one of these housekeeping style kind of genomic maintenance genes. These proteins go around and they check your DNA and they make sure everything's good. If you lose one of those, what is usually maybe a one in 20 million mistake can maybe now happen every one in five million times.
because that's about the ratio that you're looking at for when you mutate a nucleotide somewhere in the DNA. Now, obviously, there's going to be different interpretations of that number, but that's the last that I heard. Maybe, maybe that number's updated and it's worse. I'm not too sure. But for the most part, if you lose a gene that its whole role is to check the DNA, you're going to start getting way more mutations. And eventually one of those is going to pop and hit something bad, especially like one of these uh, tumor suppressor genes. And the other way that you get a mutation is just, like I said, 1 in 20 million. It hits a spot in the DNA in your genome that is very important. You lose something, very, a very important gene, and that's the beginning. And so I think I was talking with a student a little bit about it because remember episode two was about the meteor that hits the dinosaurs. And, you know, that changed the earth all for the for the better for mammals, basically, and fungi, surprisingly. But the mathematical thing is that that tumor, or sorry, that that asteroid, when it broke off whatever body it was orbiting or whatever body it used to be a part of, in with knowing our science of physics and math, once it broke off with the orbit of the Earth and the timing and how the universe and galaxy all moves, that asteroid was going to hit the Earth, right, mathematically. Nothing in the universe was going to interfere with that cosmic path, whether it took 10 million years or 100 million years to hit the Earth right at the right time. That's kind of the example that I've kind of tried to struggle. I've struggled with thinking about of when one of these DNA genes that's responsible for editing or putting down uh, new DNA when you have to replicate your DNA, if there was a way to predict when it's going to make a mistake. Like, is it fated to make a mistake in a certain spot mathematically. The same way an asteroid traveling through space is essentially mathematically fated to hit a specific path and a target in that path. Um, I've asked a lot of computer scientists, well, a lot by two, um, about that, and there's not an answer. It's too small to see mathematically. It's, you know, these things are copying 4.7 billion nucleotides every time a cell divides. Um, the data is there. We just have, I mean, think about measuring that though, and finding some kind of pattern of when these DNA replicatory proteins make a mistake. We know they make mistakes, but what I'm asking is, can we predict when and where they would make a mistake? It's kind of a massive question and that may never have an answer. So that's why the randomness of a cancer mutation is so kind of evil is that we have no way to know when some tiny gene is going to make some tiny mistake, but it happens to be in a really important spot in your genome. So that's, you know, mutation, that's where you're going to get a lot of your, a lot of your initial cancer cells. And like I said, one mutation or one alteration is not going to create a medical cancer, but what it does is it creates a new population that can grow a little bit better and it's a little bit out of control. So as we get into kind of secondary and tertiary additions to this initial cell that we have, and usually, like I said, it's usually a mutation, but I mean, it can be something else. For example, sometimes during mitosis, when cells divide, you lose entire segments of chromosomes. So like thousands of genes at a time. Sometimes you delete small regions. Those are called focal deletions or gains. Sometimes, and like I said, um, yeah, sometimes you can actually gain multiple copies of a chromosome. Now this is where when you gain copies, 
this is where you start getting an imbalance with those aggressive go genes. If you accidentally gain a cyclin or a CDK complex, these are two genes that make the cell cycle go forward. If all of a sudden you have four when you used to have two, you're going to have a lot more go signal and it's going to overwhelm all the natural stop signals that your this population has. And remember, this population probably also already has a lost stop signal to begin with. So it's when you get into these second, third, fourth mistakes that things start to supercharge. But one thing that we forget is that the supercharged genetically like huge cancer that's starting to rise up and that's what we're going to start seeing, that's not the deadliest part of the cancer. The deadliest part is that you will always, probably always have that population way in the background, silently waiting, that only has the one mistake. You can have the big, terrible cancer that goes in, messes everything up, but it's hit by the therapy and it goes away. And it really, it really does go away. That's the thing, is that when people say cancer-free, they mean it. It's that the problem with that is that you probably have that cancer stem cell population waiting, and it only has that one mutation, but that means it can take, you know, maybe three, four years down the road, mutation number two happens again. And this time it's a different pathway. And it goes down to mutation three, four, and five in a different way that the therapy you originally had is not going to work against. This is what we call relapse. Now, again, a lot of people don't like the word cancer stem cell, and, and that's fair. I actually don't agree with it too much, but it gets the point across. A lot of the scientific way to put it is tumor initiating population, which you know, describes this little tiny population with the one mistake that's waiting because they don't, they're not growing like crazy yet. They just have one mistake when you need five. And it's a lot easier to make a new cancer from something with one mistake than zero mistakes. So whether it's mutating a gene and losing it, sometimes you can mutate a gene and you activate it more. Like there are certain regions of genes that if you change them, that was like kind of their off switch and you lost it and now they're only on forever. Like I said, if you delete full regions of the chromosome, that gene's just fully gone. Like it's just, it just disappears from the cell sometimes. And that can be, you know, a consequence of, you know, just cellular stress, poor, you know, too much division, things like that. But it works towards the cancer cell's favor. And remember that these things aren't like actively searching for adaptations. They're just massively dividing and going crazy and they've, they're mutating everything. So eventually one's going to pop out with a lot of tools that it's going to take over the population and say, like, I'm the biggest, baddest cell here. I'm going to pass on my divisions and my offspring. None of you will have as many resources as me. And so those are usually the populations that we see and treat. But we always have, we have to start finding tools for the populations that are still genetically modified. So the last and kind of the final one, which is interesting, and I mean, obviously, this is not a comprehensive list. Um, there's tons of more ways that cancer can initiate. But this last one is interesting we used to think that cancer was a virus, that it was caused by viruses. And it's not really wrong. There are viruses that actually insert in the DNA or mess up the DNA. And sometimes when they insert in the wrong gene, they blow that gene up. If that gene happens to be a good tumor suppressor gene, you've lost a tumor suppressor gene only because a viral machinery came in and inserted the viral DNA right at the wrong spot. A lot of these viruses actually also supercharge the growth and the metabolism of their host cell. And that's good for them because they want to make more copies of themselves. So why not make more cells of yourself? So we know that, for example, HPV is linked to 
um, ovarian cancer, I think. Let me check on that. Um, that might be the wrong cancer. But we, we know that there are lots of viruses that trigger a cancerous response. And so that's why it's even more important to, you know, also keep our eyes out on certain viruses that we know are linked to cancers, and especially those that we have vaccines for. Definitely suggest that you look into that then. So we've kind of looked at, and the, the main things that we talked about were DNA editing and making sure that we're dividing cells and that that's how the cancer is going to survive. But the other big thing is that you not only need a ton of cells to become a cancer, you need those cells to be surviving. So those are the two key hallmarks of cancer. And I think there's like 10 that the main thing that you are going to need is that your cells have to be hardy. They're going to survive almost anything, including the immune system coming after them. And you need to be making tons and tons of copies. That's the key. That's the key of a runaway cancer. All the other stuff, you know, some people argue this with me. The other stuff is just more challenges to add to those two things in a lot of cases. So if I want to go through some of these uh, hallmarks up here, I have them up here. Some of the biggest ones, you know, um, avoiding the immune system destruction. That's huge. But that usually comes a little later in the kind of the evolution of a tumor. You have to enable replicative immortality. So we talked about the telomerase genes at the end of your DNA. Cancer cells usually, in most cases, are going to have to activate some kind of fail-safe to keep their ends of their DNA from degrading. Um, big thing, again, we've talked about angiogenesis. Tumors need food. Blood brings food. Tumors encourage blood and their veins to come to them. And then a, and then a huge thing is, yeah any cancer that can get to an advanced stage and also keep knocking out um, genetic like safe keepers of the cell, that's just going to be better because you're just going to encourage more genetic mutations. You're going to have a more diverse genetic population from which to beat any therapy with or to beat the immune system with. So we talked about the beginning of a cancer and I think we've talked briefly on the episode, but we we should always address kind of what the end stage of a cancer is, and that is metastasis or metastasis. Most tumors start out, like I said, as these kind of weird, benign little populations that maybe they have a couple mistakes, maybe they only have one, but they could lead to something else. A true benign tumor actually has like kind of closed its pathway. It's not going to evolve any different. The cells have actually either died or kind of fried up from too much growth. A malignant tumor population is one that is out of control, and we do need to treat a malignant tumor population and aggressively and quickly because it has the potential to break free from wherever it's at. And that breaking free is metastasis. Eventually, and like I said, the more genome instability a tumor has, the more mistakes it can make, but these aren't exactly mistakes when you have a population of billions. All you need is that one cell that you've mutated enough genes that it's going to leave the tumor, so it's not going to even attach to the tumor anymore. And it's going to go into the bloodstream, go into the body, go into the lymph node, right? Some of these cells are not going to find a place to stick. That's just the inherent nature of a tumor, right? You know, you've mutated all these different populations of cells, and now you can send out a cell with the capabilities to at least maybe bind to something else. And that's probably the key mistake that happens in metastasis is that somehow a cell undergoes a transition 
where it no longer needs to adhere to the tissue that it originated from. So let's say like the pancreas, for example. So a pancreas tumor cell no longer even looks like a pancreas cell. It's been mutated so much. If some of these mutations, and for the most part, they're random, remember, some of them will actually be mutations, say on the surface of the cell, that make it easier to bind to a different organ, a different tissue. This is what we call the seed and soil hypothesis of cancer, is that some tissues, when they're mutated by cancer, and when that cancer sheds them off, some of those shed cells will go find a new home in another organ system because it looks enough like their original home planet. The brain is a very good soil for a lot of these cells, for whatever reason. A lot of the aggressive pancreatic cancer type of, type of diseases, their seed comes from the pancreatic cancer cell tumor, but it finds a genetic and a physiological soil that it can bind to in the brain, and that one cell starts becoming a new tumor the minute it adheres in the brain. This is how cancer kills people, is it deregulates the organ systems because it basically just grows them out of space and ruins them. And we don't have a lot of tools against metastasis stage 4 cancers. We have a lot of systemic therapies, but if you're this far along, 10 years ago, medicine didn't have those tools. Maybe 20 years ago to be safe. I'm not going to say that there's no way this is going to work if you're at stage four, because we do have a lot of stage four people that do make it out. But this is the final, this is the, this is the worst possible place to be. And this is why a lot of therapies basically just try to prevent this from happening. Sometimes it's better to prevent metastasis from happening than it is to like try and kill off an entire malignant tumor that's at least localized somewhat. The best thing about localized tumors in a lot of cases too is you can actually take them out with surgery, which is great. That's not the case for everybody though. It's not the case for every tumor though. So the key thing to prevent the end of the cancer is to prevent metastasis. And there are some inhibitors that do this strangely enough. And we're still really trying to work out how to prevent this process because this is the process that is clinically deadly. So if we can do a better job looking at the beginning of cancers, seeing how and when they're going to evolve into this final fourth, this fourth stage, maybe then we can start kind of harnessing and domesticating, like I've kind of said, some kind of localized tumor. Um, like I said, the domestication thing, that's just a it's just kind of a word and an idea I've always had. But if, you, if we could literally just harness and keep tumors local, we could save millions of people. And that, that is a goal of a lot of scientists out there doing a lot of really good work. So kind of a longer episode than I thought, but thanks again for listening. Um, let me know if you have any questions. I know I talk all the time and kind of a lot. Um, Scout has nothing to add again. Sadly, she's resting. This is her resting time of the day. But thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in next time. Bye.